This is the Masters of Cinema cast. My name is Joachim. And my name is Tom. And today we will be discussing Orson Welles' last major film, his F for Fake. And uh, before we start on that one, I just thought we could uh, quickly mention that Masters of Cinema, they have uh, launched a new website. Uh, have you been uh, visiting that one? Um, well, I tried. And yeah. <laughs> I, I tried as long as my patients could tolerate it. And then I sort of had to very rapidly sort of leave. Well, unfortunately, part of my job, I do work with a team who are kind of a web team, basically. And mm. I do sort of see and hear examples of good and bad websites. And this one, I, I'm going to give it a pass for the time being, because I think perhaps they might be having just some issues with things like fonts and things like that. I mean, if you go on the page now and see, I'm looking at it right now, and it says, what is the master cinema? It's unreadable. Mm. text that's underneath it I, it seems kind of like there's like gaps in it and things like that and um i, I found it very hard to kind of organize um the master all the, the, the releases on them into I, yes I, I was getting a little I, to be honest I, it's the type of website where i i i, I was i seem to be having to spend a great deal of time to do what i consider to be quite simplistic things and in the end i sort of kind of went away from it because it was beginning to annoy me a little bit mm. I, I, the same with you, uh, like the trying to filter out the the films and trying to sort out like which ones are spine numbers or which ones are Blu-rays or which ones are DVDs. How can I get those only Blu-rays? How can I get it all in alphabetical order? How can I get it on the release date? Is the release date the film or the disc? Or it doesn't seem to have any sort of logic to it. So it's extremely difficult to just orient yourself. Yeah, and I mean... <clears throat> Quite honestly, some of the films simply don't work. Um, you mm. can sort by genre and n- nothing seems to happen when you, you kick on. And again, I don't know, that's just teeth. That just seems like early teething problems to me. But, yeah. but the, one I, the, the one I want is I want to sort them by spine number from, yeah. you know, like on the old website, you could see these are the DVD releases, these are the, the spine numbers, these are the Blu rays, the spine numbers. You don't seem to have that function on this one. And yeah, I was becoming quite. I'm, I'm surprised that. The website in this sort of condition without has, has gone out into the wild really normally sort mm-hmm. of testing for these things goes on for quite a while and it, yeah it's uh, it's very strange it's, it uh, seems uh, like we're not the only ones who are criticizing it i read some facebook comments that have uh, talked about the same thing so hopefully they will take that into consideration when they are adjusting their website but it is a good thing that they are updating it because the old one looked uh, really not that good either so yeah, I mean, it's one of those, I mean, how good you really want the website? How good is it really? What does it need to do, really? And to me, it just mm. needs to tell you what releases and, you know, how you can buy them and a little bit of information about them. Um, you know, perhaps, I don't know whether or not it might be interesting in the future if they had, like, kind of, like, you know, discussion forums on underneath the releases and things like that. I mean, I know, I think you can do that on the Criterion website. Um, mm. I suppose. Yeah, they have set up a forum now. Right. Uh, an independent forum on the Master Cinema site. But it seems to me that they have updated a website, but I can't remember them using their website as much before. Yeah. So uh, I'm kind of left wondering if they they have given it a polish, but what about the content? Yeah, well, I mean, again, it might just be, like we say, it might just be issues with the content management system. We don't know. Yeah. I, I, I can't imagine it's going to stay in that state for very long anyway. No. So. Okay, but moving on... Um, Oh, uh, one final thing. I know that Eureka, they have had a couple of sales since we last recorded. They had a nine ninety nine sale on 
on a few releases, uh, and I picked up uh, Wings, among others. Brilliant. Um, so I'm looking forward to diving into that one. And they also have a sale with the new launch of the website. So I picked up... Uh, you can uh, you can uh, order some pre-orders also, because they have knocked off 15% of all the titles. So I picked up uh, Faust and Fraulein Mont, uh, as well as Serpico and Island of Lost Souls. Yeah, I just want to say actually as well, um, if you're based in um, England, the best place to pick up Master Cinema releases is in the FOP chain of stores. Now, they are owned by HMV, but FOP seems to be a bit more kind of um, left field with its releases. And there's a shop in Bristol, Edinburgh, Glasgow, Manchester, Cambridge, um, one in London. I think there's a couple in London, actually, and one in Nottingham as well. And they're just brilliant because um, I, I, I normally pre-order mine off Amazon and um I noticed that they were two or three pounds cheaper in FOP on the day of release as well. So, and they sometimes have them as part of kind of like two for twenty-five pound offers as well. So, and they're really always well stocked in there, and especially in the Manchester store, it's one of my favourite places to go. Actually, it's uh, just mm. really knowledgeable staff, and uh, it's a real, it's a kind of a, it's a it's, I suppose it kind of it's a dying breed having a shop on the high street that people like to go to. And FOP in Manchester's done that really well. And I always, I'm from now on, I think I'm going to pick up my releases in there. So, if you are based in any of those cities where I said that you've got a FOP store, do check them out because it uh, certainly might save yourself a few quid if you go in there for them. Good stuff. I will check that out next time I'm in London. So, um, the, the film today we're going to talk about, that is Orson Welles' last film, as I mentioned. But um, where did it fall in your kind of discovery of Welles? When did you sort of get into this film? Um, I actually saw it several years ago and it was... It was at a house party, actually, I seem to remember. Um, and I, I think it might have actually been on on, on the BBC2 or something like that. They used to have kind of... Mark Cousins used to present a TV show called Movie Drone. And I think he might have shown it as part of that. I'm, I'm not sure. I certainly remember it having an introduction by some kind of film historian. Mm. And... At the time, we we'd just been studying um, Citizen Kane. And that was... I don't think I'm alone in thinking that perhaps for a lot of people, Orson Welles is just Citizen Kane. And mm. you, there was obviously a lot of films that came after that. But it was amazing because I, one of the things I loved about Orson Welles was his personality and that those, those brilliant kind of um, speeches he gives in Citizen Kane. And I, I really enjoyed him as an actor. And when this film began, it was sort of like, I felt so happy he was in it all the time, basically, either kind of acting or doing the voiceover. And I was kind of like bowled over by the personality of him. And I sort of lost, I didn't really pay attention to the film as much as I sort of should have done. And that kind of like really sparked an interest in it for me. And I managed to get a hold of a VHS copy of it. I think it might have been taped for the television or something. And it's one of those films I've gone back to time and time again, because I think it's probably my most it's the one Welles film that I enjoy the most mm. and since I suppose over the past few years where I've sort of made a short film and I sort of make films now I mean prior to coming on to this episode I was actually sat down doing some editing and um, I was kind of repeatedly doing the same scene over and over again and I watched Effa Fake again yesterday and it, it struck me it's a film that's really for people who love the mechanics of film as well and it's a, it's just such joyous fun to watch that I know a few people have slight issues with the story, but I, I, I kind of almost see the the, sec- the story as slightly secondary to the kind of the trickery that's going on, just with the form of film. And another kind of int- point I was thinking about it was, I don't even know if I'd class this as a documentary 
really. Um, and I know um, Peter Bodanovich says that um, Wells' intention for the film was it's kind of be like an essay on documentary, an essay on film. And he had several of these planned, and this was you know, obviously the first one. I think that's quite an interesting kind of way in to look at this film, to sort of see it as this exercise in playing around with film form. And I like anything, really. Any, any film that kind of does something different, and I know you'll agree massively on this, but Post-Sydney Bray Lux was one of my favourite films last year. Mm. And one of the reasons I loved it so much was I don't necessarily think it was a roaring success in everything it tried to do, but it kind of mucked around with film and it did things which I'd never seen before. And I think sometimes it's it's great to see not necessarily people kind of succeeding, but you know they might be they might kind of miss the mark on a few points, but at least see kind of daring types of films. And that's how I see F for Fake. It's a really daring, bold experiment, and it's tremendously enjoyable as well to boot. So really, for someone like me, it's, it's an hour and a half of pure joy, really. Mm. Um, the post Tenebra Lux, just to uh, get onto that one, um, I gave it half an hour, so I can't speak on the entirety of the film, but it just, I, I just couldn't get into it. So uh, I might have to revisit it at some point because I know you have spoken highly of it before. Yeah, I seem to remember actually when, um, when, when, when I send packages over to Nor- Norway on your behalf, um, mm. my, my normal fee is uh, some sort of uh, Blu-ray to, <laughs> to cover the post. And um, I think I asked you to send me this and your response was, fuck post and eBray Lux. So I think that was the, that was the kind of the, I, 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 I got the impression you probably hadn't enjoyed it. Yeah. And uh, I, that was correct. Yes. <laughs> if you want to read a brilliant review of post and eBray Lux, read David Blakesley's write up of it. Okay, because it's one of the most it's one of the most well written things, and suddenly so he, he, he sort of goes into this kind of like, I don't know, he starts using coarse language to describe it in a few instances, <laughs> and it's almost I, I got the impression perhaps David was whilst he was writing this was trying to think of something slightly more intellectual to say at times, <laughs> and then sort of a few expletives came out, but it's a really really interesting read. I was really kind of uh, as it's uh, yeah it, it amused me for a few days, David's review, okay. of it. and it's brilliant. I said it's I'm, I don't say I'm not mocking it; it's, it's brilliantly written and uh, really mm. enjoyable. So check it out. <laughs> Um, but F Fake, you mentioned it was his most his most enjoyable that you enjoyed watching, but yes. it certainly is most youthful film, and that's kind of interesting when it's his it's his last film that he made, and it's his most youthful. It seems like he's he's tired of the old classic film, and he's just trying to muck things about, which is kind of how we know Wells that he's this sort of. Uh, this sort of uh, vibrant raconteur who's just making a mess and constantly being on the edges of Hollywood. Well, yeah, I mean, this, I mean, this is the thing, isn't it? Uh, you, you'd have thought, and if there was any sort of, I don't know, kind of justice in the world, he would have made, he would have been making films within Hollywood all his, you know, f- forever, basically, and it, it. It sort of saddens me what happens with Orson Welles in the end because I mean I know he was sort of there's several one well there's several unfinished projects I don't this wasn't technically I think there was another film the other side of the wind which I, I understand is complete had, was filmed and has never been edited into anything and I think there's a bit of a movement to get that made and yeah of course it's sort of in this void at the moment where people can say oh it's a masterpiece who who probably don't you know, might have seen a few scenes from it in fact um. I was discussing that actually when I was talking about Jodorowsky's June um, mm-hmm. on the other podcast, which, and I, I was saying that you know, there's this sort of thing where sometimes films like that they, they have this mythical represent, reputation, and it's you can't prove, you can't even, you can't disprove it, you can't prove it either. And I mean, I mean, I'd be interested to see it, but I, it's he's the he's the ultimate tragic Hollywood figure, or some mm-hmm. I mean, he goes from sort of making Citizen Kane to the end. I think he was flogging like 
wine or something for the Shah of Iran or something random like that, or certainly, you know, just these random sort of TV appearances and voiceover work. And with that money, he was trying to make his own projects. And I know so many people who call themselves filmmakers and they sit around thinking of why they shouldn't just go out and make a film. And it really angers me, actually, because it's not hard. You, you know, just go and do anything. If you want to go and make films, go out there and shoot something. Get some friends, go and shoot it. You know, if you spend 100 quid or you spend two grand, whatever, you can go and do it. And Orson Welles never seemed to kind of let the system beat him. And I think that's because he was, first and foremost, that he saw himself as a filmmaker. That was his craft and that was his job. And nothing was going to stop him. And F of Fate kind of astounds me. And I don't want to give it, like, patronise it in this sort of A for A, you know, A for effort type way. But with no sort of major backing himself and doing the odd bit of money, you know, sort of voiceover work for a bit of money, he went out there and he made this quite extraordinary little film. I'd love to know how much it cost. Um, I wouldn't have thought very much, bearing in mind, you know, lots of it's kind of footage from another documentary. And there's these mm. kind of, I love those sort of reenactments where he kind of, there's a shot of him kind of looking at something and then it cuts to like the cathedral or something. You know, it's just like a little studio or something <laughs> like that. But because I, for some reason, you know, I just totally loved this film for the fact it was made anyway. And it's really well made. That's the sort mm. of the, you know, that's its biggest kind of trump. Comparing this to his earlier films, it seems like this is an extremely easy film to make uh, in terms of there's no sort of sets there's no like you said he borrowed material from an uh, from an earlier documentary or he was given a material from an earlier documentary and it seems like this is his this is his most lean film in a sort of way but it's very lean i don't necessarily agree with it kind of like the complexity of it because i think the complexity of it comes in the editing uh, easy in terms of like production yeah, I mean, I, I, I yeah. don't, I don't know about in terms of you know how hard it was to make, but, but mm. if you, it's it's about you know what what you can realistically do, and when you write a screenplay, you normally think very big, and then when you begin to kind of get into the kind of the practicalities of what you need to do, you strip everything back so you can do it. And that's what I think he's done. You know, I mean, he's obviously acting with his kind of girlfriend, and this is one of the things about Walter Wells. He has the personality to carry something like this through. I think he's a mm. tremendous actor as well, Orson Welles. And I think he knows that he's a very good actor and that he has a certain kind of gravitas to him. Because those some of those scenes where the kind of the voiceovers, um, it, it's spine-chillingly good, I think. And I always think the scene at the end where he's with um, Oya and they're kind of talking about this kind of Picasso kind of con that they've done. That plays mm. like a thriller almost. And even though I know that it's fake, you're sort of watching it and I get completely sucked into it. And then he sort of suddenly turns around and says, ah, it's just a film. And then suddenly the set <laughs> gets made and it's brilliant. And I love it. You know, and that's one of the reasons. And I think it's just someone who knew, he knew the limitations of which he was working and, and he did, he, he used that to his advantage, I think. And that's one of the reasons why I think F for Fake is a very, it's a very inspirational film, I think, for people. Mm. That, that final scene when he's explaining to us that it's all fake, it's, is deconstructing the movie as well as the set is being deconstructed and everything seems to like gel together in this massive ending that seems to lay everything before it to waste in terms of like how it, in terms of cohesion and in terms of understanding what has gone before. Everything needs to be reassembled in somehow. In a way, it's, it's, I mean, I remember reading there was a film magazine called Neon and it was kind of like the, the bad boy of film magazines. And 
it, it was almost like a kind of the arm and white of film magazines. You know, it was kind of it, it, it was there to kind of infuriate people. They used, they used to do a brilliant thing. They used to publish people's hate mail um, mm. to the magazine, and they did a kind of a, a documentary special. And they labelled "F for Fake" the worst, most pretentious documentary ever made. And I remember sort of reading that, thinking, "Yeah, how surprising that Neon thinks it's the worst, most pretentious documentary ever made." But and that's that that's one of the reasons why you, you don't often see for ooh, I, can't, I can't really think of many examples of films like F where they kind of it's so bold in the fact that it's kind of blatantly showing its artifice to you all the time. It's constantly reminding you you're in a film, you're watching a film. Hmm. But that being said, I mean, you find yourself getting more and more sucked into it. And ironically enough, um, when I was watching it yesterday, it reminded me a little bit in the same kind of way people don't like David Finch's The Game. Because what that does at the end of that film, and spoilers for The Game if you haven't seen, it obviously turns around and everything that you've seen before is completely fabricated. And people go, oh, it's so unrealistic, but it's a film. <laughs> Things like that happen in films. Yeah, we accept sort of the artificial in films all the time. And then what The Game does is suddenly turn that around on its head and says, well, yeah, all this is just stupid. And I mean, I know people dissected that and said, oh, yeah, it couldn't have happened. X, Y, Z, blah, blah. But it's like I say, it's a film. And F a fake is constantly telling you it's a film. You know, mm. this isn't, uh, you know, you can, I'm sure you can try as much as you want to kind of pick it apart. But I, it's, it's kind of like a magic trick in that the fact that sometimes when you find out how they're done, it just sort of, it's not, it makes it, you know, not much fun. And that's why I think mm. F a fake is best sort of just absorbed and, and then, you know, go along with it. It's a ride. It seems to be that the reception of this film was like widespread rejection and some confusion and people calling it self-indulgent and incoherent. But it seems that in the later years, it has grown in esteem and it's almost revered now for its complexity and how it kind of creates this new genre. And the the aspect of not entirely... You don't have to deconstruct the film, even though it's about deconstruction. It's more about it's more about how it um, how you how you experience it, really, as you were saying. How 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 can you follow that film, even though the story is nonsensical? Yeah, well, I mean, there is a story in there, and there is, I mean, because obviously he's, 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 he's this, you've got this kind of um, Elmer Deroy character who's this forger and in a way i'd like to know i mean i did like sort of do a bit of research on this guy afterwards and he's quite an amazing person and when you sort of see um this guy at work and sort of pooling around ibiza i do think that's actually quite an interesting story he's a fascinating guy and he's this sort of you know cad and charlatan who sort of you know decamped to the mediterranean to kind of off the back of this kind of fake arc and you're interested in the story and then what equally interesting is this kind of Clifford Irving person. And I know that Wells himself thought one of the reasons why this film might do right was because of the scandal surrounding Howard Hughes and the fake biography. Mm. And when I was watching the film, I was sort of trying to, when I was watching yesterday, sorry, I was looking at Irving sort of thinking, I was trying to like put the pieces together of him getting the idea to do this off Dehore. And it was it was sort of interesting watching those kind of moments where they're chatting and you know, Orson Welles is kind of coming in and out of the film. So I think there is a narrative in there of sorts. You just have to kind of do a bit of digging to really find it. But 
like I said, I think because it's constantly kind of jar- mucking around all the time, kind of flopping in and out. It's, it's it's certainly a film that doesn't have sort of a kind of an A B C narrative that you can sort of say this is the first act, the second act, the third act. Hmm. I think uh, the the interest in the the story that is told is what is um, what uh, differentiates our opinion of the film because I find the the storylines of Theory and Clifford Irving, I I can't really find that much interest in those characters i i enjoy the the main themes of the investigation of authorship and authenticity and the value of art and how do we use these expert opinions to evaluate something but the story of diori throwing some party telling his stories i mean it's all well and fine but can't really i don't i notice myself slipping in and out of the film lots when when the film isn't struggling with these more abstract issues well i mean i, I guess i mean i, I sort of i mean I, I do i do kind of disagree on that but i mean i think you raise an interesting point which is the stuff i i really take away from the film is when you know Irving's talking about these kind of forgeries to do it and mm. just sort of talk about the horror minute, he, he didn't actually paint copies he used to paint original um, works in the style of art of different artists, and then sell those as being genuine. Yes. And what it, it's quite incredible because when I was watching it, I was sort of looking at him, thinking, "Is he one of the greatest artists that's ever lived?" Because if he can just you know out of nothing really just make these incredible paintings up, hmm. and that was that was sort of the thing that was interesting to me was you know, is he really a faker? You know, is he you know is he completely original and when you kind of think of how derivative most kind of art is anyway, you know, is he, was he really doing anything wrong? And there was a brilliant, there's some quite fascinating thing I read the other, the other day is that people will now actually sell forgeries of his forgeries. Okay. So it's spawned this kind of crazy sort of forgery, forgery type business. And I mean, you know, the fact that he's still kind of spoken about in art circles is fascinating to me. Mm. And this, and I, I think this, the motives are clearly monetary when you read into his yeah. story. I mean, that's what he wanted. He wanted, you know, as, as much cash as he could possibly swindle out of people. But then again, I guess it comes to, you know, and Irvin says it himself that you could take it to a gallery and say it was a fake and then the curator would tell you exactly why it was a fake. You could take it to the next one and say it's real and then they'll tell you exactly why it was real. And then, if you know, it's hanging up in, in art goes and people are appreciating it. Um where's the crime in a way and i think that's one of the more interesting aspects of um of f for fake it, it, i think it's there is that sort of thing isn't it where you can see you know what's his name damon hurst pickled a shark and sold it for millions mm. you know well anyone could have done that surely you know why what what makes one thing art and one thing rubbish and it's, it's that kind of time old question isn't it and i think these are the kind of themes that are going on with f for fake and i don't think it's offering anything kind of concrete in, in terms of a resolution it's just putting a few ideas out there which uh you know i i, I kind of prefer that in a way when i'm watching a film yeah um but in terms of that his he's copying but making an original he's he's certainly mimicking the style but it seems to me that he what even though he's a great mimic he can't come up with anything sort of original well no he is though isn't he because these weren't these weren't copies not like just putting two he's not putting the original by it and then just doing a version of it 
you know, he even and he does it so effortlessly as well, doesn't he? He just sort of, I mean, that's coming. He, the, the paintings that he's making are coming from a point of originality, i.e., his sort of own mind. He's creating them, isn't he? Afresh. Yeah, but he's he's still copying the sort of style, and that that is what's the main focus of certainly um, uh, artists like Matisse and so so on, the style that they created. Yeah, I, mean, I guess that's sort of one of the point of the film, though, isn't it? I mean, to me, I think he is a bit of a genius. This guy, I think he's you know an incredibly talented man. He's, I mean, and as I understand in real life, he did try and do some of his own artworks, which weren't really no one really paid attention to. He even had the cheek as well when he sold his forgeries to galleries, and um, when he found out um, what people thought they were worth, he had the, he had the nerve to go back and actually ask for more money, and then acted actually quite angry that. He wasn't getting what he thought he deserved for his own <laughs> fakes. I mean, that, that's one of the reasons why yeah, I kind of like, I do like this guy. But I mean, I, well, I, I, I think, I mean, it comes up. I think these are, I, I do think he is quite an original artist. He's just doing it in another style. And, you know, that would be a style that those other artists have kind of used, haven't they? You know, they, they would be inspired by other works of art. So I don't know. It's, it's a very sort of grey moral area. I certainly understand your point of view. Uh, and I feel like if, if, uh, if they were originals, they would have been uh, very popular uh, and valued at uh, great worth. But um, seeing as you can't put, or seeing as it doesn't seem like he has a distinct individual style, I think that's what kind of uh, depreciates his artwork for me. That he seems to he seems to mimic mimic everyone, but he doesn't seem to find his own voice, and that's well, what is art. Well, I mean, no, he, yeah, but I mean, he did, and he, you know, he obviously didn't make any cash out of it. But yeah, no, I, mean, he's, I suppose it really is he a criminal or an artist? Yes, yeah. that sort of you know, I mean, if you're good at robbing um, houses, you know, you're still a criminal. I mean, you've got a skill, haven't you? That just happens to be illegal. I suppose his is that he can you know, mimic the style of other people and still you know make money out of it. You know, he is a criminal. Although the kind of the complexities of why he wasn't arrested. Are quite interesting. I mean, because it would only have been a crime if he had actually signed the paintings mm. by the who the artist he was mimicking, which is quite an interesting point because it, it seems um, it seems a little bit odd that you could sell a gallery something on the basis it's something it's not. I mean, I think I've heard rumours that he, he had like a partner in crime apparently who would do the signatures or something like that. So. I don't know, but it's it's an interesting. Film. And then the Irving character as well. I mean, you, you, as soon as you bring someone like Howard Hughes into it, um, I think that's another kind of another interesting aspect because I, I, I would like to know how influenced Irving was by De Hoyer hmm. into doing what this sort of planning. You know, did he sort of meet this guy and think I can have some of that? And the, the fact that the film suggests that De Hoyer as well might have had something to do with it. Again, I think it's another fascinating kind of subplot that's going on here. Mm. I think I noticed exactly when they cut to Las Vegas and started that Hughes story. That was when I, I, I because I, I was noticing I dropped out of the film and I had to rewind. And when I found that starting point, I remember that's when I dropped off. And it, it, I don't know why exactly, but it seems to me that up to that half an hour point. Uh, I had it had my attention, but perhaps it was that Wells wasn't as uh, prominent on the screen. Yeah, he does take over this film. I think mm. Orson Wells, I, he, he, he sort of personality becomes more and more kind of dominant, I guess, as it goes on. And I, I don't know whether that's because 
he would perhaps recognize the fact that there kind of there was only so much of the footage from Ibiza he could show without sort of trying to. I think he tried to kind of contextualize it a little bit more by appearing mm. in it more and kind of talking in quite sort of kind of. Um, I can't, can't really think of the words, but he, 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 I think he tries to kind of moralize. I don't know, kind of get quite philosophical about the whole thing, and it's interesting because. I think one of the things he's, he, he certainly goes quite introspective on us all of a sudden where, you know, we're getting his footage of when he fakes the Mars attack. Mm. And, you know, you think about the artifice of film anyway, in general, especially Citizen Kane, one of the things it's kind of most lauded for, isn't it, is the amount of kind of effects in it. Mm. You know, it's this kind of fake creation and it's about, it's clearly about, um, what's the guy's name? Oh, uh, Randall First. Yeah, it's clearly about him, but they've kind of set up this kind of fake uh, you know, Kane character, and it, that that's a yeah, it's a film that's kind of mimicking and pretending to be so, and it's not, and all, you know, all that kind of thing. And I, I think Orson Welles is looking at these guys and seeing part of himself in them as well. You know, they are these sort of kind of magicians and hmm. well, conjurers of kind of fakery, and I, I think they're kind of like brothers in arms. Just happens to he puts his into kind of artistic ventures, and they kind of put theirs into crime. But I think it's a kind of a continuing thread, and I quite like it that it becomes that personal because, as I've said, I really enjoy. I just enjoy his presence. Mm. The forging part. It seems that uh, Wells is continually he's rewriting history as he's saying suddenly that this film was uh, was about Howard Hughes and not William Randall first. He says that at some point in the film, I think. Yeah, Where I, but, it, obviously it, that's not that's not the case. Yeah, but that's half the that's the fun of the film, yeah. isn't it? That I mean, and he even well, I mean, he does sort of put it out there, doesn't he? That for the next sixty minutes, he's not going to lie and all that kind of thing. And yeah, you, you know, and again, you can take that with a pinch of salt. I don't think that's <laughs> you know, I think that's again, that's part of the the fun of this film because mm. if you take it too seriously and a bit too literal, I think you are going to trip yourself up. But if you sort of see it as him kind of you know mucking around and you know. I don't normally like films that are so self-aware. I don't like it when characters speak to the camera. They're the odd exception. Um, Annie Hall is one of them. Um, but this is one where I quite enjoy his interaction with us. And I quite, I do sort of feel like it's quite personal when he kind of turns in. It's, it's kind of like winking at us a little bit. And, mm. you know, certainly by um, when you when you, you show like a scene, then you'll show a pullback and it's on the editing table and things like that. And normally that really annoys me. I mean, I can't remember what... Um, there's a Bergman film where suddenly the film burns. I can't remember what one it is now. And I, I always hated that in that film. It really annoys me that he does it in that. And um, this, I quite like the fact that you that he's always saying it's fake. And on that respect, you know, it's a scripted, lots of it's scripted as well. You know, scripts are fake, aren't they, really? You know? hmm. he's, in, he's in that typical unreliable narrator that modern audiences they know what an unreliable narrator is nowadays but i don't feel that was as prominent when this film was released in 70 something 73 or something uh this like self-reflexive attention towards not only filmmaking but life itself as well yeah and i can see why this would annoy people when it came yeah. out because by the, by this time yeah orson wells he wasn't a particularly he wasn't a popular figure anywhere really you know apart from you know you those kind of the Badanoviches and the Scorseses, you know, who kind of idolised him, but to the kind of the masses, this was someone who had who way lost his relevancy really, and no one was particularly interested in him. You know, certainly the major studios and making films like. And when you do sometimes, perhaps you put so much of yourself into something, um, and and you're not trying to, you are trying to do something different. Of course, people are going to call you pretentious, and they're going to 
misunderstand what you're doing. I don't think Orson Welles is in this film all the time because he just loves looking at himself on the editing table. Mm-hmm. I think he's I think he's there f- genuinely because from a kind of directorial point standpoint, he he knows that he makes for good film viewing, mm. and that's why he's in it. And I don't think that's sort of you know a question a, a statement about his vanity. I just think it's a very logical choice for this film and. Perhaps when you pull the curtain back that much on the filmmaking process, it's like Penn and Teller when they do their, you know, tricks and then suddenly say, this is how we do it. It's, you know, I know I've, I've heard a lot of kind of um, uh, magician, you know, they, they, they get really annoyed at that because it's sort of, you know, going behind the curtain. And he's basically, he's awesome. Well, he's showing you, you know, everything's fake. You know, this film's fake. You know, documentaries can be manipulated to tell what story you want. And as an audience, you, 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 you tend to go along with it. And I think... Like I said, as soon as you do that, you're on dangerous ground with with the the establishment. Mm. I, I I like I, I appreciate his sort of persona up to a point, but there comes there comes a point where Wells he just comes off a slightly pretentious and slightly contributing to a, a like an air of detachedness to the film that I feel it results in a lack of engagement on my part where he has this constant wink in his eyes and he has this constant mischievous sort of personality, this wry sense of humour. It's It becomes kind of infuriating, but on the other hand, it is incredibly intelligent and incredibly probing to the film. So it's kind of two sides of the coin where it kind of lands on the wrong side for me, but I can understand why people are enthused by it. Uh, well, I mean, I, I disagree totally. Yeah. Um, really, everything you said, because Orson Welles one of those rare, rare people who, I think you could, I, I could listen to him all, all night speaking. He's just, he's, he's just, he's, there's something captivating about him. And I, yeah, it's a bit kind of, I guess, it, like I said, when, when, you, when you kind of, when you do direct, when you break the floor for and you talk at people, it can throw you off a little bit if you don't like the like the persona. And it, it's interesting to think, you know, is this really Orson Welles we're seeing or is it Orson Welles the character? And mm. again, that's another aspect you have to go and think about. I mean, I, I've read and heard things about him, you know, he was a, something of a bit of a party animal, you know, and he liked his sort of all-night drinking sessions with his friends and things like that. And, you know, I wonder if he was that kind of, witty and succinct all the time you know is was that him yeah was he the type of person who could you sort of see him in social situations during the course of this film sat around with friends just talking to him. i'm not sure how kind of staged they are i mean I, they I, seemed incredibly scripted because his eyes keep returning to a point off screen where it seems like he's reading off a chart or something where he's le- reading lines off screen and it, that that kind of that kind of persona or that kind of um, performance of his where it seems to me that he's He's reading a script rather than being uh, earnest. Well, I definitely think this. I mean, I, I certainly think a lot of this is is, is scripted. Mm. I mean, there's no there's no way it isn't. I mean, the, the stuff at the end with his girlfriend. Yeah. Um, that's a. I think that's a brilliant scene. It, it plays like a thriller to me, and mm-hmm. it's suddenly one of the things I, I really enjoy about it is it it's suddenly tonally. I think the film suddenly becomes quite serious. At that 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 moment and that kind of set that they're on with the kind of it's it's kind of quite smoky and it's he's got that brilliant hat on and you know 
he, he, he's a very cool looking dude Orson Welles <laughs> I give him that you know I mean I really do love the sort of the cigar and the hat and he he looks like this kind of like vaguely mythical figure and again yeah. that's the type of thing as soon as you start doing that you know if you sort of dress yourself up like that and kind of walk around like this kind of I don't know like enigmatic person people instantly gonna hate you aren't they you know it's, one of those <laughs> it's like when Michael Jackson appeared at the Brits as Jesus and Jarvis Cocker from Pulp got up and was just like, get this bastard off, you know, like proper started mocking him, you know, you're holding yourself up for that bit. Again, I mean, that, that just might be how he dressed. I mean, I, I, I hope it is because he's probably the coolest person I've ever seen. <laughs> and um, yeah, that, that's, that's Orson Welles act, you know, writing, directing, acting. That's what he did. That's what, that's what his job was. You know, that mm. was how he saw his, his lot in life. And I'm for one, I, I, I that that moment ranks among one. It's one of my favourite moments in film, actually. Hmm. And, I, and I know it seems like I'm coming off that I'm completely hating this film. That's not the case at all. I'm just pointing out the the, the slight issues I have. But all in all, I, I really do enjoy this movie, and I really do enjoy Wells, especially when he's when he's uh, using his voiceover, and he's you can tell that he's having so much fun doing this that it just that kind of. Uh, oozes off the screen for me his um his humor and how much he's enjoying making this film yeah and that that that's it isn't it uh it's this is this is someone who just adored film mm. and cinema and you can see that and as i understand i mean he used to kind of take his kind of like his editing equipment everywhere with him and he'd have kind oh. of <laughs> cans of films you know kind of these little projects that he was kind of working on and just constantly every day dedicating him life is his life to cinema hmm. and it's like so he said it was the greatest toy anyone could ever have was the greatest train set or something like that and it's a it's a shame Orson Welles wasn't around in the kind of our era now because I would imagine he would be someone who would have a blog a podcast <laughs> you know and, and he could get you know, an SLR camera you know he'd be in heaven yeah, you know, I mean, when I was playing the final cut earlier, it was, it was when I was kind of trying to edit this scene together, and I was sat there thinking, God, I, you know, Orson Welles would just—if you gave him final cut, he would be in. Yeah, you know, I, I don't think he would just turn his nose up and start lecturing on the good old days of film. I think he'd be like, Wow, what can this do? And F for fake, like, you know, if we can look at like a film essay and this kind of deconstruction of cinema, then he, you know, it's a good person to be doing that because he understood cinema and the language of cinema so well. So to go in there and do what he does with this film, um, yeah, it's, it's the kind of film I can imagine him, you know, it's, I, can, I can imagine him making it, because obviously he made it, but I can imagine it's the type of film that this would just be his kind of heaven, really. And like you say, he, the, the sort of the the line delivery and that kind of sly wink and a smile, this is someone having the time of his life. And, you know, mm. and it, it, it's refreshing as well, because he wouldn't have been stood there thinking, this, I mean, I actually understand he, he, he did think this film was going to be something of a comeback for him. I think sort of the whole kind of Howard Hughes controversy out there he was under the impression that there would be enough public interest in it to get it quick big release but you know again he he wasn't making it thinking this film's going to make me loads of money again i, I think he was he was making it because he just wanted to make a film and have a bit of fun with it and such mm. a shame that um it, it wasn't a hit i mean you know what films were we having around 1975 things like love story i mean like <laughs> I know we're going for that kind of Hollywood renaissance phase, and, yeah. but it's you know it's still it's still one of those it's, it's, for me anyway. It's one of the, the finest films to be made in the seventies. Yeah, it's a, one thing. Uh, there's not only the story is a bit like unclear, and you're you're wondering 
how this all fits together but uh, to take it up another level and more even more abstract is how much of this film is Wells's and where does his role stop and his collaborators begin because I know that uh, Oja Koda or Olga Koda or she has another name even I think she takes kind of ownership of the segment of um, herself the opening sequence in the Criterion commentary and she she sort of says that it, it was inspired by feminism or something but this film yeah, even apart from that, it has like several editors and several directors with the unrelated footage and multiple voiceovers. So yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, do you know what? I've not actually listened to the, the Criterion commentary on this one. Hmm. Um, and is the the because he says at the start the scene of her walking through was from another film. Is that actually true then? I think so. Uh, from what I understand, that uh, was a. B film photographer that put together images of both her and her sister, right? Kind of like walking around, and and just men perving at them, basically. Yeah. <laughs> right. Okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I guess that it's it's like any. I suppose we're kind of getting to the form of like you know, what genre of film this is because if you're a documentary filmmaker, something like um, the World at War series, for example. Mm. That had a series of directors who worked on it, but all they were doing really was interviews and then archival footage and then plot chucking it all together. So how much of the director can they imprint on themselves? Mm. In the case of The World at War, if you really... I mean, I've watched that series so many times. You can tell some subtle differences in the direction, certainly in kind of how the kind of juxtaposition of sound and image. But I think that's really kind of... We need to get over this kind of factor of that a director's just someone who sits behind the camera and, and sort of perhaps look at Orson Welles slightly more holistically as a mm. filmmaker and probably one as an editor as well. Because what this is, I think, is it's an exercise in you know, you get all these different sources. He's taking, he's making the film, he's doing, he's doing his stuff behind the camera in the editing suite. I think that's how you, you, know, to, you need to look at it. And all right, he wouldn't have had control over. Again, where the camera was placed and some of the other documentary stuff, but he's certainly having control of what's being shown and what images he follows it with. So yeah. I think I think certainly it's it's very much this is his film. I think he's all over it, and I think we'll sort of trying, you know, I, I guess it's in keeping with the film that it has so many people involved in it, and he's the one who's ultimately taking responsibility for it. And you know, it's the, the whole kind of who, who's the faker. But I, I, yeah, to me, this is this it's just directing from a different place. I think that's how we need to look at it. Yeah, I remember that uh, when I first started film school, I we were given like a, a five-minute uh, footage sequence and we were supposed to edit all together individually. And that's kind of the same thing that he's doing. He's taking this footage and whatever results come out, it will be inherently Wells's. Yeah, and he's the other thing he's doing, obviously, as well, is he's he's gone out and shot a lot of his own stuff. Yeah. I mean... Um, I love the fact we talked about it when Wes was on the show um, with uh, such people. He's a, he's a great magician, mm. Orson Welles. I mean, and, he, and I know during the war, him and Milana Dietrich used to do a magic show together for the troops. And I just, I just, it must be somewhere. There must be footage of that. <laughs> and because he's obviously a really good magician, that kind of stuff with like the coin and the, you know, again, it's, we know, we know one thing we know about magic is it's not real. Mm. Um, and I think it's a great little kind of way into the film because he's got that he's got his kind of cool hat on, his kind of big cloak, and he's doing that magic trick for that kid. And 
that, that's one of what the, it's, it's, we always, we're very keen to put a genre on films. Um, I think it makes us feel a little bit more comfortable. And when I first saw F for Fake, I was thinking, right, this is a documentary. And I was like, hang on a minute, it's not a documentary. That's clearly scripted. And then it's, it sort of makes me think about documentary film as well and just how artificial that is. I was mentioning earlier that this was received like widely uh, rejected and uh, with confusion, but it's like uh, I mentioned that it, it has grown in esteem and almost has a new like cult status nowadays, hasn't it? Yeah, and that's often the case with films, isn't it? I, I remain convinced that in a few years, Cloud Atlas will be a classic. It's a classic already, hmm. um, in my opinion. But I'm convinced that, yeah, I, I think in a few years, people are only going to go more crazy. And sometimes when, when films like that come out and they, they dare to sort of move away from the kind of the path of banality and do something different. And it's like that we're saying at the start, they don't necessarily need to succeed fully. But FFA, you know, it was largely dismissed. And I think that's probably down to the fact that where, who's, where are you going to play this film? You know, where's its audience? How are you going to market it? You know, what, what are you going to do with it? And probably people say, you know, I can't be bothered with it. And for that reason, it kind of got cast off into kind of cinematic obscurity. But I mean, I, I was reading some sort of appraisals of it um, quite recently. And it does seem to now be kind of seen, it's referred to as a Wells masterpiece. Mm. And I don't know how much whether, um, when we say the name Wells and a film, you have to put in the term masterpiece because <laughs> it's awesome Wells. I've certainly never seen a film of his that I think is bad. Um, they, they all seem to be pretty pretty decent. I don't know if to say this is film's a masterpiece or not. Um, I, I probably need to kind of get some distance from it and go back to it again. It's certainly, I think, I think it's a brilliant film. Mm. That's how I would describe it. Um, you know, yeah, I suppose if people want to call it a masterpiece, you know, that's their that's their prerogative. But it's, I'm glad it's got. Um, it's it's being spoken about again, and I'm glad it's kind of out there because it deserve, it should be seen. You know, it's it's it was uh you know it, it it's something different for people to watch. You know, mm. it's it's that I, I despair sometimes when I go on Letterbox and I see people like they're just watching the same types of films over and over and over again. And we've said it before. You go on most kind of Facebook groups and it's the same conversations about the same films and. I just wish people would kind of you know, take a little bit more notice of films like F for Fake, and because you could, you could, I mean, you can you could pull this film apart for days basically and have yep. so much fun with it, and I think people are sort of missing out on that. Hmm. Uh, hopefully, this will receive an upgrade on the Masters of Cinema because Criterion they have recently announced a new Blu-ray transfer of this one. Perhaps uh, Masters of Cinema can jump on that boat. Yeah, I don't know how much it's going to benefit from a Blu-ray record. I watched the Criterion, Dave. I've got the Must Cinema and the Criterion. And I watched the Criterion version of it last night on on my tape. And I sometimes forget. I mean, I know we're in the digital age now. You know, DVDs still look pretty good. And this, 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 it looked really, really, you know, really well. Hmm. It still held up on that format. I don't know how much kind of a high definition is going to, I don't know what's going to add to the film. It's certainly not going to subtract, detract anything, but. Yeah, it'd be nice to see, you know, to make, you know, to, to, so, so at least makes the 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 uh, format jump and the kind of you know, it'd be around for a little bit longer. I don't know, yeah. you know, the kind of the commercial demand for it. Obviously, Criterion have felt those one if they're going to put it out. You know, they wouldn't just upgrade it for fun, would they? Hmm. Uh, but at least, as you said, it's not slipping through the cracks uh, in no. the format transfer. So that's a good thing. What what kind of supplements are there on the Master Cinema DVD? couple of uh, booklets a booklet and commentary 
It has a commentary by the cinematographer Gary Graver and Bill Crone as well. But Gary Graver, he actually made a nine-minute short film that was released as a trailer for this film. And it was composed of almost entirely original material that is not in the main film itself. And it's kind of shot and edited in the similar style of this film. And But it's it's a sort of a self-contained short where uh, Gary Graver, Wells and Oja Koda, they are the ones that contributed to the film. Um, and he, uh, Gary Graver, he was paid by Wells uh, with uh, Wells's Oscar, actually, his Oscar statue. <laughs> so, but uh, the film itself, like, which which cinemas will release a nine minute trailer for a film? Um, well, again, it's a pity that they don't, they weren't making this in today's age because we'd be lapping it up on YouTube, wouldn't we? Yeah. And it, you know, again, it's 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 one of the reasons why this film's probably you know, it was so sort of unfashionable. Hmm. You know, because like you say, I mean. It's the odd niche cinema, but I mean, yeah, you know, you've not even got, you can't even stick it on the front of home videos, can you? Because that that hasn't even begun yet. You know what I mean? It's just, <laughs> it's just a very strange, very strange way of. It's a really inventive way of marketing thing. I'm thinking quick, quick tangent here. We haven't had any tangents today, and I think it's time for a tangent. <laughs> God, yeah, I miss when trailers or marketing for film was like little snippets in its own right. Yeah, and. The the best example of this I, I was thinking about was the it's a Justin Timberlake film called In Time, and I'm sat there watching it, and the trailer's obviously telling me everything that's going to happen in the film, and I'm like, Do you know what? Conceptually, I'm into this film, but what you've just shown me is just basically a concept that I like in a film I've seen a thousand times before, and I, I tend I, I turn to the, uh, the the former partner, uh, and I, I said to her. All I needed for that film was a man running down the street with a clock ticking down on his arm, begging for credits for his arm, for his time, and then dying. Mm. And then it just says, in time, coming soon. That would have got me interested in that film. Mm. I would have been like, wow, that looks really interesting. I like that idea, this kind of time as this commodity which you can buy and, you know, haggle with. And that, that's that's what I miss about film marketing. Yeah, it's just so... Benign. I watch films out. It's like Lone Survivor. You know, that film was marketed to me as being this sort of dumbass expendables action film. Mm. And I was like, well, I'm not interested in that. And then I watched the film and I was like, what I just got was a really emotional and thoroughly kind of moving film, which I, I, I was interested in that film, not this sort of stupid action film you were trying to sell me. And I just, it just infuriates me so much. Seems like they are going to the lowest common denominator and removing all of the the controversial aspects of all the films they are showing you they're showing you things that we know before and not what the film is attempting to do that is potentially new yeah exactly and it's i mean would lone survivor have made more money if they marketed it more genuinely hmm. i don't you don't know do you i no. mean um, you know, why risk it? I suppose if you're making that money, that type of monetary investment. But you know, I was watching the trailer again for Alien the other day, and it's fucking terrifying. It's an egg <laughs> on a grill with this horrible noise playing, and you're like, oh my god, what is that? You don't, you, know, you don't need. It. But now, you know, it's like you you just you have seen the Alien right at the front. There wouldn't have just been one Alien. There'd been fifteen hundred of them, and you know, it's just been stupid. It would have been aliens. Yeah, it would have been, you know, and it would have been like, you know, God, yeah, there's no sort of mystery, is there? No. Like Godzilla, and I, I said to this, I said, if I see Godzilla in the fucking trailer for that film, I'm not going to go and watch it. 
So what do I get? You get the, the mega tray. There it is. It's like, come on. So keep it. Just have people <laughs> reacting to it and running away. Yeah. That's not even a scene in the film. You know, to have that noise, that, that roaring noise and some thuds and then people running. Yeah. And I'm happy. I'm there. <laughs> no. Right. Oh, well. <laughs> I, can, I can stop ranting now. I can feel myself coming back. <laughs> I'm relaxed. Right. <sighs> um, by the way, the, the audio commentary on the Masters of Cinema, that is exclusive. So... The Criterion one, they have a different one with um, Oja Koda and Gary Graver, the DOP. So, uh, and also Jonathan Rosenbaum, he contributes a half an hour video piece for the uh, DVD for Master of Cinema. So, if you can, if you can find it on their Master of Cinema DVDs or the site, their their shop, you should pick it up. But I don't think uh, it's that easy. Yeah, you should pick it up um, for. It's currently eight pound fifty two on Amazon's website. Yeah. So if you do you, know, you want to pick it up, so it's obviously still being made. And it, it does say on Amazon right now, since there's only six left in stock, brackets mm. more on the way. So I don't think it's been deleted. So uh, yeah, no need to kind of uh, panic. But I mean, yeah, I mean, I, th- I think kind of like rounding up, this is, I think this it's a brilliant film. And I, this is one of the things that I have a rule now when I watch films at home where I put my phone in the other room mm. because I've decided my attention span has just been reduced to the size of a gnat and I'm, I'm always checking things. And th- there was a, a moment in a film I was watching on Sunday um, called Exhibition and I, th- I thought for 15 minutes into it, I thought, I hate this film. I, I, I hate it. And it slowly won me over. And um, the reason it won me over was because when, when it got pretty brilliant and quite compelling but secondly i was completely dedicated to it without pissing around on my phone checking stupid things or just sending offensive text messages to people and f for fake i think is a film that's made for people you, you have to concentrate on it and you have to go with it and i think if you if your mind strays i think because of the kind of the, the shifts in location and time mm. and you know, who's this and who's that i think it will completely throw you it's, it's certainly one where it deserves and needs your undivided attention mm. That is true. Um, I have I have the same issue where I need to I need to turn off my phone. The only problem is I watch this via Hulu on the internet, so okay. I sort of I at times I kind of uh, minimize the or not minimize, but I put on uh, fake on one half of the screen, and I put up the, um, the uh, another Explorer window on the other side, so I could kind of jump on different websites and stuff uh i did watch this three times though to get through it and get uh get uh, everything in so but I, I know exactly what you're talking about i need to be more diligent in that, that area of my watching yeah i've i've got this new it's a new rule in this yeah. house it's a new rule this is what happens when you're single you invent new rules for yourself <laughs> and your imaginary friends that come around to watch films so in my house now that's it now it's it yeah it's in the other room i've stopped drinking alcohol during films as well that's my other oh that's my other little thing. That's yeah. a big step. I know, yeah. I, I'm, I'm on this sort of evangelical, not trying to drink very much <laughs> at the moment thing. And um, I actually alarmed myself the other day when I was watching a film and I managed to drink a bottle of wine in like an hour and a half, like an oh. entire bottle. And I just looked at it and I thought, well, I don't even feel dr- drunk. And secondly, I, I was just like necking it like water. So yeah, new <laughs> rules in this house. I'm not going down the road of alcoholism. I'm just a vague. That's my, if, if you if you know that you're not an out, if you, if you can recognize the fact you drink too much, that's, that's a good thing, right? Yeah. It means you're not an alcoholic. That's right. Okay, thanks. So yeah, <laughs> it, it, that, that, to, to sort of aid my kind of you know f- film watching, I've decided to do that, and it's certainly paying dividends because I got more out of effort fate this time than I ever have. So mm. that's my top tip for this uh, this episode. 
Okay. Um, so what's going on with the 24 frames cast? Have the, the Bond episodes, have they stopped completely or? No, they haven't actually. It's just that I think I was so depressed by A View to a Kill <laughs> that I couldn't, I couldn't carry on. And then I, I think I got the box set for Christmas and the Blu-ray box set. And I, I just, to be honest with you, what with, um, having to kind of move out, I, I will get back on with those as well. I'm currently just doing a one, an episode about um, Sight and Sound's recent greatest documentaries of all time list and kind of sharing some thoughts on that. But I have got this massive episode sort of almost finished about the Harry Palmer films. So it's been bubbling away for ages. I just keep going back to it and making a few... It's one of those ones where I've kind of got... I've I've looked at it too much, I think, and I need to sort of release it into the wild. But it is certainly still very much going. And uh, yeah, I I did accidentally, when I put the new episode up the other day, um, changed over the feed to the Master Cinema feed. And I did get a few emails from people saying, I've already subscribed to that one. Now you're trying to make me subscribe to it again like it was some sort of grand conspiracy to get people <laughs> to come over. It wasn't. It was just because I was knackered and I put the wrong feed up. And uh, it was sending me, it was confusing me for about 10 minutes I worked out I'd done. So I do ah. apologise for that everyone. But yeah. Thank you for joining me today, Tom. No, mate. Always enjoyable. No, sorry, just one quick one. Um, just a quick lament for the loss of the auteur cast ah, and yeah. for, for western really because we've had them both on the show and uh, i was well gutted with that one actually to be honest with you it's always sad when my my, my podcast sort of listening has kind of the amount of podcast subscribers has gone down um quite a lot it's kind of become more quite quite niche really and that the auteur cast is one of my fav- very favorite ones and uh yeah su- such a shame and uh yeah i'm really sad that they're not going to be on the airwaves any longer yeah, I second that one. I think I followed it from episode 20 or something, so it's been yeah. quite a ride. Yeah, definitely. And uh, well, I hope Rudy continues in some capacity on something else. Yeah, and hopefully West will return at some point in podcasting in some form or another. So He was pretty well. He, was, he, he did use the word retirement with immediate effects on oh. his Facebook thing. Yeah. So I'm, I'm uh, yeah. We'll, we'll see. We shall see. Yeah. But uh, until next time, thank you for listening and uh, goodbye. Thank you.